30. If you were here a few weeks back, it's probably been over a month now, I guess, we looked at how to rekindle the relationship with God, how to, how to rekindle that walk with God, and we took the first chapter here in Second Chronicles that is dealing with King Hezekiah as he ascends the throne, and we looked at how he immediately started his, his reign off with turning the kingdom of Judah back to God. And we looked at some of the steps that he took, how he put God first. He was, it was in the first, the, basically the first day that he ascended the throne, he said we need to get the temple cleaned out, and we need to get the worship of God started again. Of course, his father was King Ahaz, who was a very godless king. And Hezekiah made the decision, we're going to turn the nation back to God. So he gave God the preeminence very right off the bat. Um, he encouraged the Levites and the priests that were cleaning the temple to be prompt. He said, don't be negligent in this. You have to get on it now. And we had looked at how um, in our Christian life, oftentimes we have a tendency to say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll get right with God tomorrow. And if you have that mindset, you will never rekindle that relationship with God. We must be prompt when we're seeking to do that. And then um, you see that you had to prepare. They had to actually clean out the temple from all the um, junk that had been put in there, the different idols or the different uh, altars to false gods. They had to get out. They had to re-sanctify the instruments that were used for the different parts of the of this worship of the, in the, that took place in the temple. And then... Um, so that we saw that in, in our own lives, we have to prepare. We can't just, we're not going to be able to serve God effectively. We're not going to have a, a close walk with God in a haphazard manner. Say, well, I hope I please God with my life today. And then take no steps to make sure that happens. You're not going to please God with your life. Um, so we, there has to be some preparation in place. And then progress forward. Just getting back with God, getting that life back on track, getting the, the train on the tracks, so to speak, is not the end goal. That is merely the beginning. We have to keep going forward in our walk with God. And so we looked at that here again a few weeks back. And so um, this uh, tonight we're going to be looking at what are the effects of having this walk with God? What are the results of revival in our lives? What does it look like? Almost like a litmus test of whether we are we, whether we have that close walk with God or not. And we're going to look here, again, the next two chapters uh, following the first chapter that dealt with Hezekiah. Um, and we'll see what takes place here in, with Hezekiah and the, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. And we'll see that you can definitely tell revival was taking place. There, would, there was a rekindling of that relationship with God. And so what I want to do is just kind of take this as a snapshot uh, and see, compare it to your own life and see if these things are in your life to determine whether you have that relationship with God or not. And again, Hezekiah, if you look here, the, his first year, as, uh, just getting a little background with Hezekiah, first year uh, that he reigned, great year for the kingdom of Judah. I'm going to kind of summarize what takes place in these next two chapters. We're obviously not going to read it all for time's sake. Um, but, of course, under his guidance, Judah turns back to God. Temple, we, uh, in, in chapter 29, the temple was cleansed and sanctified. The people really gave their heart to God. But, again, it did not stop there. Um, Hezekiah said we need to keep the Passover. Um, but because the 
priests were not purified, they were not sanctified, there weren't enough of them sanctified to be able to participate in this, they decided to push it back one month. Now this was all in accordance with the law of Moses. There was a provision made if someone, whether it was on a journey um, and couldn't make it back to the spot to, ha- to partake of the Passover, or if he had, through no fault of his own really, had become unclean um, and was unable to take of the, partake of the Passover on the set day, they were able to do it the next month. And so here, the entire nation says, let's do it a month from now, and Hezekiah takes advantage of this, and he sends out invitations into the northern kingdom of Israel, which at this time had, hadn't partaken of the Passover for over 200 years. And so he sends invitations to the northern kingdom and says, why don't you come down and participate in the Passover with us? And there was the majority of them mocked, uh, but there was a significant um, pop, a population, a significant, significant number, <coughs> excuse me, um, from the northern kingdom, who responded and came down to partake of the Passover. And this Passover, if you would look in in chapter 30, verse 26, you'd see that this Passover was the greatest Passover ever partook of since the days of Solomon. Um, And this has been several hundred years, over 200 years, and this has been the greatest Passover celebration since the days of Solomon. And as you would springboard off of that going into chapter 31, you would see that this really inspired all of Israel to go out, any of the ones that were there, to go out and just start destroying any graven image, any idol that they could find. Um, and if you go through and, and read these two chapters, it is very, very encouraging. As you're going through the, the history of the kings, sometimes it can be some pretty discouraging stuff. You're like, man, this nation just turning away from God. Um, these two chapters are not that, or these three chapters dealing with Hezekiah's revival here. Definitely not that. It's a very encouraging. You see a people just getting right with God and the actions that result from that. So we're going to use, again, the, we're going to use these two chapters and determine whether we are walking with God by whether we see the same, same things in our life that we see here in the kingdom of Judah. And there's going to be, uh, <clears throat> there's going to be three things that we'll see. Is First of all, there's a remembering of God's goodness. There's the fact that prayers are heard, and that there's going to be a thorough cleansing that takes place. And all of these will be in the life of a person who has a close relationship with God. I'm not saying every prayer is going to be answered. But the consistency of it, you will see your prayers answered. When you have that walk with God, you'll see your prayers answered. You'll always be remembering God's goodness. And, of course, you'll make sure that your life is pure. Um, and it has a, you have, you're clean from, from perpetual sins, basically. So first thing we're going to be looking at here is remember, a remembering of God's goodness. And we see this in chapter 30 and the first four verses. It says that Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. Again, it was supposed to be kept in the first month, but now they're going to keep it in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently. Neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation. So here we have this decision. They're going to partake of the Passover again as Hezekiah has begun his reign 
um, it is very close to the Passover. And so they get the temple cleansed out, and the Passover basically is right on top of them. And they say, we don't have enough time. The people are scattered throughout, throughout the country. And if we want to really have a, a, a good celebration for the Passover, um, we, we need to push it back a month. And as I mentioned, the, there was a, not very many priests sanctified. Uh, there weren't enough priests sanctified to be able to keep it very well. And so they make this decision. So what is the Passover? What is the Passover? Again, the Passover is a celebration, really, remembering the mercy and the grace that God had shown to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Of course, the Passover, referring to the angel of death, passing over the, uh, the, the houses that had the blood of the lamb on the doorposts, and then, of course, killing the firstborn of any house that did not there in the land of Egypt. And so it's, it's linked in conjunction with the um, exodus because they were supposed to eat it ready to travel. They're supposed to leave it basically at, just before you walk out the door. And so it's all in conjunction with God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt, from bringing them out of bondage. And we, uh, in the church, we as a church have a similar um, thing that Christ has instituted, and that is, of course, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Um, again, the Passover just being a picture pointing toward the Lord's Supper. We celebrate the Lord's Supper of the Lord's of the Lord shedding His blood and allowing His body to be broken for us, so that we can be saved from the bondage of sin. And so, the Passover is a remembering of God's goodness, of His mercy toward us, and here they decide we need to partake of the Passover, and we need to do it right. We need to do it properly. And so a remembering of God's goodness and His mercy um, should, should always have an effect on our life, and it will, will always have an effect on our life. Um, we need only look at the uh, 23rd Psalm. The last verse there, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What's the result? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is a result, there is a, a natural consequence that comes when we remember the goodness and the mercy of God. Um, and it is, it is key to us having that close walk with God. So we'll see how it affected the Israelites here in our text when they, remember, when they were remembering God's goodness. First of all, we'll see that they were telling others about the goodness of God. Let's start, pick it up reading in verse 5. So they established a decree to make, a, to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that's from the southern city of Israel to the northern city of Israel, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done it for a long time in such sort as it was written. So they had partaken of the Passover, but not according to how it was supposed to be partaken of. So the post went out with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. Northern kingdom is about ready to be taken completely captive by the Assyrian Empire at this time. And be, ye not, and be not ye like your fathers, and like your brethren, which trespass against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as you see. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord, and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. 
For if you turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not and will not turn away his face from you if ye return unto him. So the post passed throughout the city, city to city, to the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So you see now, they are say we're going to partake of the Passover, but let's tell others and remind others of the goodness of of God, And that is what we as a church are commanded to do with the Great Commission. To go out and tell others about the goodness of our God. About the mercy that he shows. And as Hezekiah said, if you turn to him, he will not turn his face back from you. His message, starting off, is not a pleasant one. He's like, look, you better, don't be stiff-necked like your brothers, like your fathers. Uh, don't, don't, be, don't be like that. That's not a very pleasant message to hear. And when we go out and tell the world you're lost in sin and you're on your way to hell, that's not a very pleasant message to try to give. But don't just give that message. You've got to follow it up with the solution, just as Hezekiah did. That Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And that God's goodness and his mercy is still reaching out to you. And so when we are remembering the goodness of God, we need to go out and we need to tell others. And that's what someone who has a strong walk with God, has a good relationship with God, that's what we should be doing. Again, the love of Christ should motivate us, just as it did the Apostle Paul. The love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge, if one died for all, then we're all dead. The people we meet every day at our workplace, our neighbors, they're dead in their sins. And it's up to us to tell them of the goodness of God. So we need to remember to tell them about the goodness of God. And again, remembering the goodness of God for us should cause us to go out and tell it to others. So they they were telling others about the goodness of God. But not only did they tell others about the goodness of God, they showed the goodness of God through their actions. Let's look at at, uh, chapter, or sorry, verse 18 there in chapter 30. It says, for a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they did, did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, the good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So Hezekiah now, he is demonstrating the goodness of God, the mercy of God. As he is praying for those who were not sanctified, they were not ceremonially clean to part, clean enough to partake of the Passover. And according to the law of Moses, they were forbidden of partaking of the Passover in this manner. They were not supposed to take, partake of the Passover when they were unclean. But Hezekiah says, look, they're doing their best. They prepared their heart to seek God. And we already read where the Bible says that they humbled themselves and came down to Jerusalem to partake of the Passover. <clears throat> Again, we should not only demonstrate, not, we should not only tell others of the goodness of God, we should demonstrate it to them through our actions. Hezekiah understood what those of Israel, of the northern kingdom, were coming out of. Again, over 200 years since the northern tribe had really partaken of the Passover. They had been in idolatry, Baal worship, worship of the golden calves. 
And so Hezekiah did not expect them to behave as the kingdom of Judah, which had had some good times in, the, in their, in their uh, history, uh, some times where they were close to God. He did not expect them to act the same, to be the same. Rather, he besought God to forgive them of their ignorance to the law, to his word. He's showing goodness, he's showing mercy and grace here by how he handles the northern kingdom of Israel. And the practical application for us, of course, is we cannot expect people coming out of the world to act and dress and talk the same way as we speak, as we talk and act. The appearance of others should never determine how we welcome them into our church. Some people come in and they're little, little rough looking. Doesn't matter. We're still supposed to treat them in the same way. And this problem goes back to the first century church. James had to deal with it in the epistle of James. He says, you have a rich man comes in, he's in goodly apparel, and you give him the best seat in the house. And then you have a poor man come in, and he's got vile raiment on, and you just say, go sit over there, or, or you can just lay here under my footstool. It's been a problem since the first days of the church. But we need to keep this in mind. We need to demonstrate God's goodness. Not just tell others of God's goodness. Demonstrate it by how we treat others. So we need to tell others of God's goodness. We need to show others God's goodness. But also there's the, when we have this remembering of God's goodness, there's going to be a unity that takes place. And let's look at verse 12 of chapter 30. It says, Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart, to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. Another benefit of remembering God's mercy is unity among believers. And this makes sense because when we remember where we all came from, what we all are or were apart from Christ, it should help us to remember that we're not better than anyone else. And we should overlook the differences between us. There's going to be some friction. There's going to be some personality conflicts. I understand that. You're not going to get along with everybody the same. But we still should have that unity where we are caring for each other the same way. Not showing partiality at all. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 31. is where we'll start. Acts chapter 4. If the church is going to be effective at all, there must be unity in the church. If we are going to have a right relationship with God, we cannot be at odds with our fellow Christians. The Bible makes it clear several different passages that you, are not, you cannot expect to have a right relationship with God if you're harboring a grudge against someone else. Um, God's not going not to have any of it. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 is where we'll start. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. And it goes on from there. Now, we see the principle of unity taking place here in the church at Jerusalem. They were all of one heart and of one soul. 
And you think, well, that's great. They were all Jews. And, and they were at this point. But if we look back at the day of Pentecost, I believe I counted up to be like 14 different languages that people were hearing with the, when the, the tongues came down, the gift of tongues was there. And there was, I believe it was 14 different languages. Do you know what that means? That means there's people from all sorts. Now, they're all Jews, but they're people from all different areas of the world. And they all have their particular little cultures. And I, may, I have news for you. This may be a news flash. Not all cultures get along. There's always going to be these idiosyncrasies, and this is, I'm talking, this is obviously talking about different regions and countries, but even families have family cultures, and they don't all jive. They don't all go together very smoothly. But here you have thousands of believers in the church at Jerusalem, and they're all of one mind and one soul. There's a unity there that can only affect be that can only take place when we are when we have that right relationship with God, but also when we are remembering the goodness of God. Because again, how do we get over other people's uh, idiosyncrasies that really tick us off a little bit? Is we remember we may have some of our own, and there are faults in our life that God has seen fit to forgive us of and to accept us, even with those um, little quirks that we have. And so that can help us then say, well, I need to forgive them as well. I need to be able to accept them in, that, in their personality. Annoying as it may be, uh, we are commanded to be at one, to be unified as a church body. And it is necessary for um, our own walk with God. And so when we remember the goodness of God, it can help with that unity between believers. All right. Back to Second Chronicles chapter 30. We'll see the second thing here um, that takes place when you have rekindled that relationship with God. And that is found in verse 27. We see prayers are heard. Second Chronicles chapter 30 verse 27. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people. And their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. And that doesn't mean it just went there and God said, no, I'll just ignore it. I'll put it on hold. It means God is answering this prayer. Now, what is this prayer? The Levites, the priests, have arose and they have blessed the people. It means they have gotten up and they, most likely a um, a public address, but they are praying for God's blessing on the people. And that, of course, is exactly what we should be doing for our church, is praying for the blessing of God to reside on our fellow um, church members, our fellow believers. To get up and you pray for God to, uh, God's Spirit to work on their hearts, for them to draw closer to God, for God to bless them, and all these things. You could word it in a myriad of different ways, but basically they're praying for God's blessing on the people. And we see it takes effect the very next chapter, um, and we'll get into that here in a few minutes. But their prayers are heard. And this is a result of having that relationship with God. In Psalm, uh, the Bible says that uh, if I regard iniquity in my, Lord, in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If we have sin in our heart, we don't have that relationship with God, your prayers will not be answered. God will not hear our prayers. And again, the very fact that 
we can have our prayers heard, we can have our prayers answered is flabbergasting to me. Um, when we remember who we are, wicked, vile sinners, um, on a, we're just a, a speck of dust on a tiny planet in, you know, kind of a smaller solar system in this galaxy of the Milky Way, and there's like 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And God, the creator of it all, says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to that little speck of dust on that insignificant planet. And I'm going to answer his prayer. Just amazing. But if we have a right relationship with God, God not only wants to hear our prayers, but he wants to answer our prayers. He didn't say, oh, oh, oh I don't, I don't, yeah. I want to hear it just, just to make them beg for it. No, he wants to answer our prayers. But those prayers can only be answered when we are doing what we should be doing. When we have that relationship with God, that is right. John chapter 15, I'm going to read a verse here, verse number 7. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. If you are living right with God, Christ said you can ask what you will, and it will be done now, again, this is not asking to fulfill upon your lust. That's something completely different. You could have so many messages detailing prayer, and this is not the time for it. But just know when we, one of the effects of having that relationship with God is our prayers can be heard and answered. And what a comfort that is to us. And we should, we should not take it for granted. We should take advantage of the fact that we can go to the creator of the entire universe and he is longing to answer our prayers. And so we need to, again, keep that in mind. Last point here, there is a thorough cleansing that will take place when we have this relationship with God. Chapter 31 now of Second Chronicles, we'll read the first seven verses. Now when all this was finished, the Passover and of course the prayer, uh, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and break the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin in Ephraim also and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned every man to his possession into their own cities. And Hezekiah appointed the courses of the priests and the Levites after their courses. This is just an administration. Um, I'm actually going to drop down to verse number 4, 2, and 3. Just deal with Hezekiah um, setting up the administration of um, the priests and and the Levites and everything. Verse 4, Moreover, he commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. And as soon as the commandment came abroad, the children of Israel brought in the abundance, brought in abundance, the first fruits of corn, wine, and oil, and honey, and of all the increase of the field, and the tithe of all things brought they in abundantly. And concerning the children of Israel and Judah that dwelt in the cities of Judah, they also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep, and the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated unto the Lord their God, and laid them by heaps. In the third month they began to lay the foundation of the heaps. And finish them in the seventh month. And they end up having to build storehouses um, to store all these um, goods that people were bringing in. So, but first, that first verse there, they go out and they break down all these images and throw down the high places and the altars throughout Judah, Benjamin, and even into the northern kingdom of Ephraim and Manasseh. 
So once the Passover is finished, the people got to work. Um, and we see two overall things that they did. They cast out sin, casting down of the idols, and then they heeded the word of God. They had a thirst for the word of God. I'll demonstrate that here in a little bit. But first, they cast out the sin there in verse number one, of course. Um, and as we look at this, this is obviously evidence of a walk with God, of a desire for God. That's casting down of, of any idols that have been in place. Saying, we're not going to worship that anymore. We're not going to serve that anymore. Um, that's not going to have a place in my life anymore. And for us, hopefully we don't have any physical idols in our homes. Uh, but the non-physical idols that we tend to erect are really far more insidious. Um, and, and Paul, there, that can be, they can be many different things. Paul touched on some of the works of the flesh that really have a tendency to rule our, rule our lives, just as the idols, the false gods, would have ruled the lives of the children of Israel. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. Alright, so he, Paul here is encouraging the church there at Colossae to mortify, to kill the works of the flesh. These things that had been in their lives beforehand. But now they have no place in the life of a Christian. So he's encouraging them, you need to cast these out, you need to mortify them, murder them, is basically what he's telling them to do. And really, this mortification of the flesh, this mortifying of the flesh, only takes place after there is a seeking for God. Because in Colossians 3 verse 1, I love how the chapter starts off, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth, at the right hand of God. If you are saved, if you, if you have, are saved, here's the course you need to follow. You need to seek after God. You need to have that relationship with God. Now, along with that, once you have established that, and now you're going to progress forward, here's some things you need to do in your Christian life. You need to mortify the works of the flesh. You need to put off anger, wrath, malice. You realize how controlling some of these things can be. We all, I'm sure, know somebody who anger just controls their life. And it has that place of prominence in their life. That dictates how they act toward others. And it really is a sad thing to see, especially in the life of a believer. And here Paul is encouraging them, he's exhorting them, he's commanding them, you need to get rid of these things. They're just like the idols of the Israelites. They take place and they are ruling in your life. And, of course, he makes the direct uh, reference to covetousness uh, being idolatry, worshiping of money or of, of other things that you might be coveting after. So we need to cast out the sin. We need to have a thorough cleansing in place. 
But casting out a sin is not the only thing that needs to take place for us to be cleansed. We need to also heed the word of God. Let's turn back to 2 Chronicles 30, and we'll see here um, what I mean. Excuse me, 31. Verse number 4. It says, Moreover, he commanded the people that dwelt in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the Lord. So here he is commanding the people, particularly the inhabitants of Jerusalem here, says you need to give the portion to the Levites. We, in our day, would see this is a part of tithing. Uh, we need to give the tithe. Um, and and this, the, the purpose for this is not to enrich the Levites or the priests. It's so that they can, be, they can be better freed up of menial tasks to teach the word of God better to the Israelites. And that goes hand in hand with what we see in the New Testament with the man of God. How you are supposed to give the tithe and so that the man of God can be better equipped to study the word of God and then teach and preach the word of God to the flock. If, they're, if they are, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but Paul made a reference, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, if you are, they're ministering to your spiritual needs, it only makes sense that you would minister to their carnal needs, to take care of their physical needs, so that they can better care for your spiritual needs. And here Hezekiah is saying, you need to give, not for their benefit, not for the benefit of the Levites, but for your own benefit, give, so that they can better Teach the law of God to you. And look at the effect that it had, this command. Man, they gave instantly. Not, the commandment went out, and the children of Israel, they started bringing in all, all, the, all the tithe of the different uh, fruits or the different crops. And then the surrounding cities of Israel, of Judah, heard about it and said, hey, we want a part of that too. And so they started bringing it in. And again, what is the purpose for this? They're wanting to be better instructed in the Word of God. They're having a, they have a thirst for God's Word here, and it's resulting in some action, of course, as it always does. So Hezekiah encouraged Judah to give so that they could better receive instruction in God's Word, in godliness. But the catch is, as we are commanded to give, and, and hopefully we do, hopefully we, we pay the tithe. Again, the tithe is the Lord's. Not, this is not a tithing message. But hopefully we have that in place in our life. But the catch is, we have to be willing to apply the teaching to our lives. If we're giving, and the man of God is getting up here, he's done his part, he's studied, he preaches, and we say, um, no, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to apply that. Then you just gave for no reason. You just, why would you want to give then? If you're not going to apply the word of God to your life. Really, it's so much more profitable for us when we have this mindset of saying, look, I'm giving this. And yes, not every message is going to be palatable to you. Matter of fact, probably most messages should not be palatable to your flesh. I think it, you might be treading some dangerous ground when it is palatable to your flesh. Um, but we have to be willing to apply the teaching and the preaching of God's word to our lives. And we cannot maintain a close walk with God 
if the teaching of God's word is not heeded, if we choose to disregard it, if we choose to not apply it to our lives, we will not have a close walk with God. We will not maintain one whatsoever. Because, of course, it is the word of God by which we cleanse our ways. Psalm 119, verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And then again, Ephesians chapter 5. The washing of, the wa- of water by the word is how the church will be presented to Christ holy and without blemish. The heeding of God's word must be in place in our life. And it will be. When we have that walk with God, we will have a desire for God's word. A desire for the teaching of God's word. And we will look forward to it. To sit under the preaching and say, how can I draw closer to God? How can I apply this to my life? That desire will be in place. The desire to cast out sin will be in place. The desire to heed God's word, to apply God's word to our life will be in place when we have rekindled that relationship with God. But if the desire for God's word is not in place, you may have a problem in your life. Maybe you're just backslidden. Maybe you've grown cold and calloused to the preaching of God's word or to your own devotions. Or it's even possible if you have no desire for the things of God that you have not been truly converted. When we look at this chapter and we see these things, the remembrance of God's goodness, the fact that prayers are answered, and the fact that we have this, there's this thorough cleansing, this desire for the cleansing of, God, of God's word and how we will cast out sin. That's when we know we have that relationship with God. That we are walking, pleasing in his sight. But if it is not there, it might be time for some self-examination. So look at these things and then look at your life and see if some of them are in place or if they're missing. If you have all of them in place, that's great. That's not the end goal either. Keep going forward. If you've got one or two missing, work on it. Say, all right, I've got I to work on that. I haven't remembered God's goodness to me like I should. Let me work on that. Let me put something in place to help me with that. If you're missing all three, again, some serious examination that needs to take place in your life. So we see a massive change in Judah after this revival takes place as they rekindle their relationship with God. And if we claim to have this walk with God, again, we should see the same actions in our lives as well. The question is, do we see these effects that we saw in this, these chapters, do we see them in our lives tonight? All right, let's bow our heads, close our eyes. We'll go into a time of invitation now. As I mentioned, again, if you do not have a desire for the things of God, if none of these things are in place in your life, there is a possibility you have never truly been saved. Maybe you just said a few words. Somebody said, do you want to go to heaven? You said yes, and he said, pray this prayer. It's dangerous. If there's anyone in here who said, I don't know if I'd go to heaven when I die. I would like to pray for it. Again, anyone at all say, I'm not sure if... If I died tonight, if I would actually go to heaven. I don't see these things in my life. I have no desire for the things of God in my life. If you could raise your hand, I would love to pray for you. Again, not going to call you out. Anyone at all. All right, Christian. We'll never be perfect. But these things must be in place. 
Remember all that God has done for you. And yes, that is a, a, a proof of a walk with God when you have that, but also is a help to keeping that walk with God. And the fact that we can go to the creator of the universe, the almighty God, with our prayers, whether it be a prayer for others or a prayer for ourselves, what a privilege that is. Don't misuse it. Don't neglect it. And then, are you allowing sin to remain or are you casting down those idols? Are you mortifying the works of the flesh in your life? And how's your desire for the word of God? Is it so great that you were willing to give for it? That you were willing to sacrifice for it? Whether it be money as the Israelites did or crops in, in that um, society or sacrificing sleep to get a little bit more time in in the morning? Do you have the effects of a walk with God in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you for all you've done. And Lord, I pray that you just uh, bless this time of invitation. And Lord, I pray that you just, um, again, work in, in hearts as you see fit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's all stand to our feet. And let's turn to page 483. Lord's worked on your heart. You can come to this altar and do business with him. Page 483.